You're listening to Rocks Across the Pond, the curling podcast that goes around the globe looking for the best stories in the world's coolest sport. We have curling news and views for everyone, whether you're playing in your Thursday league or following your favorite teams on tour. Now here are your hosts, Ryan McGee and our professor of Peel, Jonathan Havercroft. Hey everybody, welcome to Rocks Across the Pond. It's a curling podcast coming to you from Richmond, Virginia. My name is Ryan McGee and joining me from Southampton, England is our Professor of Peel, Dr. Jonathan Havercroft. Jonathan, how are you today? I am good. I got to watch curling yesterday. I know. It's pretty cool. <laughs> it's been it a was, while. Well, well, good. you didn't you didn't stay up to watch the Japanese championships like like I did. So this is this is new and exciting for you, but like I've been watching curling for like a month now. And we should we should hype your um, link. <laughs> Ryan Ryan has the created the ultimate Google Docs spreadsheet that he's constantly updating of every streaming game that he can find anywhere on the planet uh, with the links. So we have that posted on our Facebook and on our webpage, right, Ryan? Yeah, and it's on uh, like it's our it's our link in bio on Instagram as well. But it's um. It's a lot easier to update this year. Obviously, last year, not 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 as many things were canceled last year, so it was a it was a much more uh, much more time consuming process updating it last year. This year, uh, not not as not as much. Um, but yeah, so we've got that available if you want to check out some some live curling. Like Japanese mixed doubles is about to start that kind of thing. And what I've learned from Ryan is that there's always a curling match on somewhere yeah. in the world being streamed. Like especially last year during all like during like Japanese championships, US championships last year, there were a couple days where it was definitely possible to watch curling for twenty four consecutive hours. I did six hours yesterday, which was felt decadent. <laughs> so <laughs> everything feels um, decadent these days, man. Everything <laughs> that is everything that is like a slice of the before times feels decadent. My wife said it, it was the first time she'd seen me smile since Christmas. <laughs> She's like, you actually seemed happy yesterday. And I was like, well, there's something that brought joy to my life for a brief oh, no. moment. <laughs> oh, man. So we have a really important show today. Uh, Jonathan, you did an interview with three people from the Global Initiative for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Curling. And uh, this group came together recently, and they are kind of putting together something that, that didn't really exist before, which is resources that curling organizations can use if they are motivated to improve the diversity, equity, and inclusion within their group. Yeah. And so I think a couple of things, it's good to see this momentum going. Um, like we did a few episodes last summer and a lot of other podcasts did some great work last summer around topics around uh, equity and inclusion and diversity and curling and the lack of diversity to be kind of blunt about it, um, which was, I think in a certain sense, a significant shift, right? In terms of how just, just having, just starting the conversation is significant. Um, one of my big worries at the time was partly because of the pandemic and just partly because of human nature, people just move on to the, the next thing. But I think for curling, 
um, regardless of where you are in the world, it's just too important to just, you know, issue a Black Lives Matter statement in June, as genuine as those words may be, and then not really do much. So one of the things we want to do using our platform is track some of these initiatives that are going on and then, you know, have people on that are, are leading the conversation to kind of amplify that. I think we've kind of agreed that's one of the ways our podcast with its audience can, can help a bit. So this is a good chance to kind of review those things 10 months later or eight months later, I guess. So Jonathan, the three people you talked to were Monica Walker from the United States, Sarah Carlson from Sweden, and Pian Raju from India. And obviously, there's a lot more people than that behind this initiative, but those are the three that, that we were able to speak to the other day. Yeah. And so I think for, for curling fans, especially fans of international curling, um, probably two of those names will be well known. So Monica Walker plays with uh, Team Sinclair, uh, won a slam in 2018. is a very accomplished curler. Sarah Carlson won a world championship for Sweden, uh, I think in 2011. Just checking here. Yeah, 2011. Um, and so they, they are competitive curlers in their own right. Sarah is now a development officer with the Swedish Curling Association. But I think one of the things they want to make clear to me in our messaging is they didn't want to talk about their curling or their, like they didn't want to be foregrounded. The whole point of this initiative is to, to kind of start a conversation about transforming curling. And the third person is Pian Raju, who's, um, you know, I think as you'll hear in the interview, kind of had a lot of great interventions here. Uh, he's worked actually in Indian fo football or soccer, depending on how you want mm -hmm. to call it. Um, so kind of has experience as a sports executive, moved to the Bay Area a few years ago and took up curling, I think he said about six years ago in the interview, um, and is now leading the charge to, to get um, Indian curling going, right? So mm -hmm. participating in their mixed double program and building a program there. So he's, he's kind of quite a, I guess, a sports entrepreneur is kind of how I might describe him. Yeah. Um, so they're all very interested in curling. But I think they all came together, as we'll find out in the interview, because they're, they realize that, first of all, not much is being done on this front in terms of concrete changes. It certainly wasn't prior to last June. And part of that is a lack of resources and knowledge, right? So part of what this initiative is, is pulling together resources to think about how organizations can um, address issues around diversity, equity, and inclusion, right? So... I think if there's if there's one big message to take away from this interview and you're listening to this podcast and you think that this is something that matters to you as a curler, that you're kind of concerned that your curling club isn't that diverse, I think that the big takeaway message would be to reach out to them, sign up to their newsletter and participate in webinars and kind of look at the resources they're starting to collect. I participate in one of their webinars and I talk a lot about that in the interview, but they're offering them about twice a month right now. And then... Um, hopefully, basically through networking and sharing of knowledge, um, it's possible to start building a more diverse curling world from the club level all the way up to the World Curling Federation. And so it's basically everyone's got the change is kind of the big message here. And uh, sometimes change is difficult, but it's good to have a, a conversation like this with people who are kind of leading the charge, if you will. Like, so basically, I think, and I'm going to steal this question from Ryan, but our basic go-to kind of icebreaker question is... Um, I guess your name and then where you came from and uh, how you got into curling, basically. So we'll start with Raju if you want to go, then we'll do Sarah and then Monica. Does that make sense? 
Hi, my name is uh, PN Raju. Um, I was uh, born in India. I grew up in India. I discovered curling uh, during the 2006 Winter Olympics. That was the first time the Winter Olympics were broadcast live in India. Um, had always wanted to play, but never got a chance till I moved to the US uh, in 2014 signed up for a learn to curl at the San Francisco Bay Area Curling Club and have uh, not stopped since. So I've been playing for six years. Super. And so Sarah, how did you uh, get into curling? Um, I started curling in the year 2000. Uh, so 21 years ago, um, just because like there's a curling ring quite close to where I live. I had friends who, friends who played and like, they brought me along. Um, and the club was like really enthusiastic with getting new juniors. So they sent us out, I think, on our first competitions about four weeks after we tried. Um, so I was hooked by then. And so and so just to, for our listeners, you, you live in Sweden. Which, which part of Sweden do you live in? Yes, I live in Karlstad. So most of you will know that from okay. the hometown of Timedin. And Monica, so where did you grow up and where, how did you get into curling? Um, so I am from the Boston area. Um, I kind of grew up in and around curling clubs. Um, my parents are curlers. They're actually from Scotland originally. Um, and it wasn't until I was about 10 that I decided I wanted to try the sport. Um, and so I've been curling ever since, uh, I guess, 24 years now. <laughs> it's kind of a long time. But yeah, I'm, I've been part of the U.S. Uh, national team for I think like seven or eight years at this point. Okay. And, and Sarah, you also played for the Swedish national team as well? Yes. Yes. Uh, and, but you're retired now from competitive curling or are you? Yes. Or is that a different service? Yeah. From, from competitive curling. Yes. Uh, and then Raju, you're involved. Are you, do you play on the Indian curling team or are you uh, just involved in helping get them set up or? That's the dream. Uh, so we've played like on an Indian team at the Pacific International Cup, which is not an official UCF competition. The Curling Federation of India is hoping to become a provisional member of WCF. And once that happens, India can start sending uh, teams to international competitions. So my personal dream is to skip uh, an Indian national team at some point. Okay, so today we're getting you here to talk about the Global Initiative for Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion in Curling. Uh, and I'm probably going to shorten that to DEI if that's all right throughout the, the podcast because that could be a bit of a mouthful otherwise. So can you first of all explain what is, how do people from Sweden, India, and the U.S. get together and form a global initiative? So how, how did you all meet and that what prompted you to start this initiative in the first place? So uh, I also work, I'm development officer for the Swedish Curling Association. Um, it's probably good to know within uh, this conversation. Um, so last uh, spring, um, I read the dissertation from Dr. Richard Norman, who is about, it's about mostly about like the whiteness in curling and that norm. Um, and I got in touch with him because um, I read that and um, I think everyone should uh, read it uh, because it's um, very relevant and I just felt like we have we have we have to do something about this like we can't just talk about it anymore we have to change something so I reached out to Dr. Norman and he's been 
uh, incredibly helpful in guiding us uh, through our first uh, steps. Um, and he also told me that like Curling USA are having this same conversation and um, got me Monica's contact information. So I reached out to Monica on Facebook and I'm like, you were talking about this. We are talking about this. Probably more curling nations are talking about this internally, but rather than like reinventing the wheel, can we see if we can exchange ideas? So I reached out to Monica and um, uh, we had like a first uh, conversation and then also talking to the World Curling Federation, they gave us a list of other countries that might be interested in joining. So we just sent out an email to see who wanted to join and we got way more responses than than we thought. <laughs> um, so all of a sudden we were um, like people were looking to us uh, to start guiding and leading this work. So for myself personally, um, the key link here is definitely Dr. Norman. Um, I currently work uh, part-time for Goldline Curling Supplies as their social media manager. Um, And uh, Dr. Norman is good friends with Aaron Flowers. So over the summer after the murder of George Floyd, we um, ran an Instagram live series um, featuring Dr. Norman, uh, basically just trying to start the conversation around these issues in curling. And so Dr. Norman has become sort of a mentor to myself as well. Um, And he definitely put Sarah and I together um, and has helped us with this initiative ever since. So he's a key piece. I had met Ray Hussein from Guyana at the 2018 WCF Congress. Um, And I think Monica and Sarah had reached out to Ray uh, to see if he'd be interested in joining the initiative. And Ray reached out to me saying like, that this initiative is forming and would I be interested in joining? Um, and I've been working with uh, Monica and Sarah since. Yeah. And additionally, um, when we were first starting, we felt that it was very important for us to write a charter, just kind of um, putting down on paper our position and kind of some of the goals of the initiative. And um, Raju took a, a key role in helping that come together. So Sarah and I very quickly felt that he was an integral part of our work. So what do you hope to change in curling through this DEI? What's what's the goal or what's the vision? First, like we, we want um, to find the structures that we can change uh, to be better. And we all wanted that. Like I wanted that for my association and Monica for hers. So like for everyone that's joining us so that they can find the tools to make their organizations more welcoming. And like our main focus has been well, anti-racism and the fact that there are a lot of white people curling and not so many non-white people curling. Um, and I think we'd like that to change most of all. Yeah, um, this really started out as kind of an examination of... Um... I guess you could call it white, like curling developed countries. And it's quickly kind of pivoted to also include um, an amplification of voices for non-white curlers and also emerging curling nations. So um, we've kind of pivoted already. um, And just in general, it became very clear that there was a huge need for um, some kind of initiative like this, because we just simply didn't really see any activity in the space. And we, we really didn't want to let the year go by without any kind of change in our sport. But at a high level, um, 
really the goals of the initiative are to just foster discussion in the space, um, kind of provide like a, a leadership or a, a point of unity for this work. Um, we wanted to share resources and kind of share best practices. Like Sarah said, there's no need to kind of reinvent the wheel with um, this stuff. There's already a lot of work being done in different areas. So why not share that? And um, we also want to just provide networking opportunities, kind of bring people together and bring experts together um, so that we can provide education in the form of you know webinars or newsletters, and also to kind of create a group that holds itself accountable. Um, none of us are experts in this, and uh, but if we come together, we can hopefully make some change. And Raju, what do, what do, what uh, what do you hope to change through this initiative? I guess a couple of things that like both Sarah and Monica mentioned. I think uh, curling is not a very diverse sport right now. So the idea is to have more people of color playing the sport, have the sport be more welcoming. So from an Indian perspective, I think it's about trying to get more Indians involved in the sport, have them feel more welcomed at curling clubs around the world, and also trying to use the lessons we learn through uh, the global initiative to also help the Curling Federation of India think through diversity, equity, and inclusion at the very beginning. CFI is just starting to form, so it'll be great to have lessons from around the world, uh, learn from those, and build an organization on top of these uh, basic principles. So I think Monica mentioned this a bit earlier, that there have been a few other initiatives um, I guess since last June. So the the big one that I'm aware of in the U.S. is the USA curling program called Icebreakers. So I guess the question is, are any of you involved in it? Because I know both, both Raju and Monica must be, we obviously are members of USA Curling. And I guess, what have you heard about it? And then how does your, how's your initiative different? And are, is there kind of conversations going on between the two groups? So I currently do a bit of work for USA Curling on their DEI committee. Specifically, I'm on a subcommittee um, that's focused on the BIPOC community. And um, so Dean and Deb, who are kind of running the Icebreakers program, they are also in that committee. And actually, one of the primary functions of the committee is to support the Icebreakers program. Um, so yes, I'm pretty familiar with it. Um, I think it's awesome. I think the main difference is that um, Icebreakers is really targeting uh clubs, curling clubs at the club level um, and the outreach that they do and the membership retention that they have. Um, whereas our initiative uh, would certainly, you know, target a program like this at the club level, but we're more focused on the organizational level or the um, governing body level. Um, so we're looking at how curling organizations can, um, you know, perform outreach and retain new members, but um, we're not necessarily necessarily doing that at the club level with this initiative. So while we very much um, want to work with the Icebreakers program, we're actually going to have them uh, present um, for a webinar with us in the next month or so. Um, this is something that, you know, is coming from I, from USA Curling at, at the club level, and there's probably a lot of shared practices that we can take from it, um, but we're more focused, focused at the organizational level. So you're primarily focusing then on working with NGBs, right? I assume that's like your primary target then through the WCF. So have other NGBs reached out to you 
or is the WCF kind of partnered with you on this initiative as well? Yes, we have uh, Scott Arnold and uh, Daryl L from the World Curling Federation. They joined um, all of our webinars before Christmas. And uh, I know that they've been talking about us also on the board. So that's uh, exciting. And also that the World Curling Federation is now writing up their charter or statement uh, on of their own, um, which I think is good. Um, so now I think most of all, it's uh, Scott Arnold uh, with the World Curling Federation, who's um, who's quite close to us, um, and like we update him regularly, and he sends us news and tips as well. So uh, we are hoping that this is something that the World Curling Federation maybe will run in the future. Um, so we're like our our goal is that we get it started and we get it going, and we would we would like this to be something that they are doing in the future. Okay, so. What do you think the largest challenges are um, that curling's facing from a diversity, equity, and inclusion perspective? And maybe, um, maybe if you could kind of break down each of those terms, if that's possible. So, because they, they, you know, they obviously touch on different areas. So curling is a rather unique sport, right? In that, like both able-bodied uh, and disabled athletes of all ages. Uh, and genders can play together, at least at the club level. Uh, and uh, you would think like that would make curling a very inclusive sport. Uh, but unfortunately, that's not the case. Uh, we are currently not a very diverse community. Um, and we think the biggest challenge for diversity, equity, and inclusion, uh, or at least from that perspective, uh, is identifying the, the the structural barriers and the implicit biases that prevent diverse groups from trying and sticking with our sport. From the outside looking in, curling might seem like a great sport for inclusion because people of all ages and abilities, and uh, you know even people with with disabilities, are able to play at least at the club level on the same playing surface. But in fact clubs aren't really that way right so so what what do you think the major challenges are to overcome uh that lack of inclusion at the club level yeah i think there are some um communities that we welcome pretty well like you said um anyone of any age can really play curling um people with disabilities may have an easier time getting into the sport uh because of things like wheelchair curling or stick curling. Um, but in terms of the BIPOC community, um, we don't see a lot of representation of that community in the curling world. I think part of the problem is, um, one, representation at the top level of the sport. So there's not a lot of um, BIPOC members playing competitive curling. Um, so when, you know, you don't see someone that's like you at the top level, it's maybe harder to connect to the idea that, you could actually make it there yourself. Um, so that, that representation piece is pretty big. I think the other piece is the fact that curling is organized around curling clubs. And so the very nature of a curling club is to be exclusive and not to be inclusive. You have to be a member to join. So I think perhaps rethinking that that way that we organize might be a, a huge way that the sport could change, um, whether it be like forming curling centers that are more of um, community-based. Uh, they serve the community that they're located in. They have um, 
other programmatic offerings. Um, so that's just one thing that we're kind of thinking about. Yeah, I think this kind of leads into the next question. So a big issue in traditional curling countries. So I'm thinking here, Canada, the U.S., Scotland, Sweden, right? They're all in the global north. Um, historically, at least, they were a majority white. Is that the curling clubs end up still being far less than diverse in the communities they're in, right? And that's I actually can just pick on my own club that I grew up in in West End Montreal, which is you know Montreal was a majority francophone city when I was growing up. And even just on the question of language, curling clubs used like my curling club used to be 80, 90% English. And, you know, some ways was actually explicitly in its history exclusionary towards the, the Francophone community. So why, what do you think clubs have to do to kind of undo their, their histories of exclusion, if you will? And I'm wondering if that you see similar patterns in, in Boston or in Sweden or in San Francisco, where the clubs may have like a strong history of exclusion, sometimes explicit um you know there's certainly in montreal were clubs that wouldn't accept jewish members back in the the 40s and 50s um uh and sometimes just kind of implicit so what do you think clubs have to do to change this history first of all i think one of the problems is that we believe that we are really welcoming um because we want to be and i don't think like again like I'm, I will generalize through this entire rant. So <laughs> I'm sorry to all the clubs who don't feel like this is true for them. But um, because like there's no one who says like, no, we don't want new members or diverse members, but that's not enough. Like not standing in the door and saying you're not welcome. Like it, it's not enough to that you're not doing that. Like you have to actively change your structures and look at what obstacles are there for people who are not the norm to participate and feel welcome in this club. And overall, I think there's a huge like lack of like clubs actually making time to have strategic conversations. Um, And I can understand that because um, there are not that many people who want to volunteer in a club to spend a lot of time pushing these issues and working for your club um, and we have almost all, all, all of Curling Sweden is driven by volunteers. And if, if you raise the issue, you know, the person will be like, yes, I think it's really important. But I have all the juniors coming now in 10 minutes. And then I have to plan this competition. And I also have to do the ice. Um, and the clubs are not making time to actually sit down and look at what's the structure of our club. Who is welcome? Who does not feel welcome when they walk in the door? What can we do to change um, and I think every time, like we are now adapting some systems to force this conversation within the clubs, and when we have it, it's really good, and people really want to change. But it's gonna take a lot of effort, and you have to want to make the effort. Um, and I think that's where we are, just at the starting point right now. Yeah, if I could add to that, um, I think there are a lot of great programs out there that are on the right track towards this. Um, So for example, Rock Solid Productions and the Rocks and Rings program, even the Icebreakers program that we just talked about, these are really great programs um, for performing outreach to improve diversity in curling clubs. Um, What's also great about them is that they're looking at this from more of a programmatic, sustainable approach. Um, They're performing the outreach, but they also want to retain the new members that they get. So there's a lot of um, up and coming initiatives 
out there. Um, but I, you're right, Sarah, like clubs need to think about this more and be more strategic about it, um, more intentional about their approach, but also intentional about the retention piece and the sustainability piece. Yeah, because we talked about this too, that there's also a bit of a lazy approach when you say that this is a question of the next generation. Like, look, like when these kids grow up, we will have a more diverse crowd in curling. But are we really if we don't like, change the way that we structure ourselves? Because um, I think I, I hear that excuse quite, quite often um, that like the next generation will be more diverse. But I think we should have seen some change by now if that was the solution. I think another thing clubs can consider is how they reach out um, with the community that they're located in. Many clubs are just looking for curlers across, you know, the entire city that they live in, that they're located in. But um, in reality, like the point of a curling club is to serve the community that it's located in. And if the population of the curling club doesn't reflect that local community, then that's a serious issue. I think that's a question to be raised and something to be fixed. Um, so just kind of having those conversations and asking those questions are really important. Raju, I was going to maybe flip it around a bit as someone who who's new to the sport. What what's your? Because I think often when people come come in with like fresh eyes, they can see stuff that perhaps people who've been in a club their whole life can't see, right? So. What were your observations about curling kind of when you joined the San Francisco Curling Club? Right. So I think, uh, at least from my personal perspective, I think I knew I wanted to play the sport. I mean, I'd always had this dream of representing India in an Olympic sport. So I wanted to play. Uh, so like there were no programs or policies that tried to retain me. Like I went to a learn to curl. I immediately signed up for like a further three class beginner learning series but like there was no well thought out approach to try and retain me after that first first learn to curl and i think especially in the bay area we see a lot of interest from diverse groups diverse communities during uh, the winter olympic cycle so like every four years there's a huge spike um, and i think what i've seen a lot of clubs not do is uh, have a retention policy like Monica was alluding to. Um, and another big thing that at least from an inclusion perspective, I find is uh, is the kind of artifacts that you find in clubs, right? So you might have flags of, of a few countries. Uh, you, you go to bond spiels and you have these uh, national anthems for a few countries played, but they're not representative of everyone who's at that bond spiel. Um, so things like those, uh, I think clubs need to spend some more time thinking about like the artifacts uh, that exist in clubs at bond spiels. Are they welcoming enough? Are they inclusive enough? Has someone actually thought through like why is a Canadian national anthem being played at a U.S. bond spiel while there are like Indian curlers there, there are Mexican curlers there? Why is it? Indian national anthem not being played, whereas a Mexican national anthem not being played. So things like those, uh, something that I've observed and something that we've discussed within this group. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I really appreciate what Raju said about the artifacts and clubs, because I'm just thinking about, you know, all the curling clubs I've been to and how they all seem to have this kind of um, mausoleum is the word I'm thinking of. That's not quite what I'm trying to say, but they have this kind of shrine of 
trophies and photos of um, old white men from the 1800s playing. Um, thinking about the Calgary Curling Club in particular, they have quite an extensive kind of history section in their club. And that, that's pretty cool if you're a curler to check out. But if I were new to the sport, I might feel quite overwhelmed or um, very unwelcome, uh, kind of wondering if there's a place for me in the sport. And I can't speak to what others feel, but I do think there's a, a piece of that to consider when we kind of put clubs together, how they might appear to somebody coming in who's new. Speaking of the international dimension here, right? I, I sat on your webinar with um, the leaders from emerging countries that you had a few weeks back. And I, I think that's actually up on YouTube now, right? For people to watch if they, they want. So I, I thought that was really interesting. So you had you had guests from, uh, you had Adriana from Mexico. You had uh, you had Ray from Guyana. You had uh, TJ from uh, Nigeria. Uh, Kim Ford from Australia, right? So you have this this collection of, of people who kind of represented their countries internationally, and have got a, got a bit of prominence for their sport. Uh, and what was interesting is they were they were talking about they all of them mentioned this chicken and egg problem, right? So emerging countries need to perform on the international stage to get funding, like just to get even the funding to compete, let alone get a facility. But facilities, but you need facilities and good coaching to compete at the international level, right? So. Maybe if if Raji wants to answer this first, because it's I think it's kind of definitely in your real house is kind of setting up the Indian curling pro- program, right? So how do you think emerging countries, especially from the non-traditional regions of the world like Asia, Latin America, and Africa, can break through in the sport and the world stage? So what's what are you going to try to to tackle through the Indian Curling Federation to tackle this chicken and egg problem? Right. So I think uh, this is uh, probably not within what the global initiative uh, are like main aim. This is something like WCF should probably be tackling. But like, if you wanted my personal opinion, I think it's about creating those uh, opportunities for these emerging countries to train, maybe play against each other. So it shouldn't be just like you play at the Pacific Asia Curling Championships or like a qualifier to the World Championship. And that is the only time a lot of these countries have the opportunity to play against strong teams right so i used to work uh, at the asian football confederation so soccer for my american and canadian fans uh so we used to have something called the vision asia program the idea was afc had divided countries into three groups emerging countries developing countries and developed countries so there was specific events and programs for emerging countries the confederation put in a lot of effort just trying to develop uh, those emerging countries. So I think it would be great if like there existed something like that, where like uh, India, Nigeria, and other emerging countries could play against each other. Uh, like there were events, WCF events, where like if you won, you got a direct entry into another international competition, for example. So things like those... Uh, just creating opportunities for these emerging countries uh, to train, to play against uh, each other, to get that experience at like an international level. I think that will go a long way in uh, building strong teams and uh, at least showcasing those teams at an international level that would hopefully solve that chicken and egg problem you were talking about. Does So what else do, what else do you think the WCF 
and other national governing bodies can do resource wise to help promote not just emerging countries, but also just the general kind of diversity, equity and inclusion in the sport? It's not necessarily our place to you know, tell the WCF what to do in, in this space, but we can definitely provide our thoughts and recommendations. We had that this panel um, because we wanted to amplify certain voices, especially from emerging curling nations. And I think the panel turned out to be a great way to do that. Um, in terms of what the WCF can do, um, one thing that we thought of was uh, they provide kind of an equal opportunity uh, resource called the the DAP, um, and Sarah can speak a bit more about this, but it's um, kind of a one-size-fits-all um, piece of funding for countries to use towards whatever they, they wish. Um, but we would argue that perhaps uh, this funding in a one-size-fits-all format doesn't necessarily work in the space. Um, it's an example of equality versus equity in which, in which some countries may need more funding um, based on where they are in terms of being curling developed. We're thinking about um, solutions in uh, many different levels, depending on the country that they're working with, rather than just a one-size-fits-all. Another thing we thought about was kind of having a, a mentor or a buddy system where more developed nations are um, partnered with a, an emerging curling nation and um, just create relationships with between the countries, create rapport, um, share experiences. Again, not trying to reinvent the wheel each time a new country wants to be part of the WCF, but kind of creating a platform where best practices can be shared. And I recognize that maybe this is a bit naive of me um, or idealistic. Uh, obviously, countries are competing against each other and may not want to share resources. But I do think that the WCF can take a leadership stance, and they already are in many ways um, with the World Curling Academy, um, providing videos and resources that countries can all take part of and um, use as they will to kind of break through uh, into the top tier of competition. So, Can I just, because I know that there is a mentorship program, because um, Curling Sweden has been approached on a few times, um, about sharing, like, I know that, like, from our, like, board, like, we just say that, look, we share. Like, and I know that our top teams also have said that we share everything but rock information. <laughs> um, <laughs> we will keep that to ourselves. Um, it, but so far, like, for the mentorship program, I don't know what the plan is in the future. I know that there is one, um, but I think we need more, more guidance in order to actually... Um, make good work of it and you know adriana said that too that like yes mentoring but we need someone to coach us right here where we are i think wcf does provide resources for example india was able to use dap funding to get some of the equipment right and uh, wcf also has this uh, program where you can buy rocks and curling equipment on a three-year loan and stuff so there are uh, these programs that like countries can use um but yeah i think uh emerging countries probably need more than that one size fits all so any additional help will always go a long way so there's a response that's probably going to come back to people who are skeptical of these initiatives which is i guess a who i, I think he puts it as who's going to pay for it so there's a cost question i think there's also just a why should we do it kind of question like you got a bit of heel dragging so what, how do you respond to that kind of, I just call it heel dragging or resistance to these kinds of initiatives? Um, what, what kind of pushback have you received already? Because I imagine you've received some. 
look, we we decided that this is not for people who don't think that the AI is important. We formed to make sure that all of us that do think it's important can help each other to do better. Um, so like, while we have a list of arguments, um, like my initial response, like if you don't want to be in this space, then don't. Um, <laughs> and you can try and catch up uh, afterwards. Um, but we did form this for people who actually care about the AI. Let's talk about it together. Let's try and do better together. We didn't form it to convince other people that it's important. We haven't even received any pushback yet because we're not even engaging with those who may not agree. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's fair to say that we got different responses. Like, look, when we sent out that email, um, our, like, our, you know, like we've said a few times, we were mostly aiming for the big established curling nations who are mostly white and very normative. And we got amazing response from all of the other countries who were all really like, like, thank you for involving us. Like, this is amazing. Can we join? Can we help? While in general, the bigger curling nations were more like, oh, well, yeah, we know we need to do this. Uh, we might join. Um so and I'm not talking about everyone, like a few has been really, really enthusiastic as well. Um, but there has been a difference here. I think there's also a way to do this very cost effectively. I mean, we're not operating with any uh, funding or resources, financial resources right now. Um, so we're actually doing this all volunteer based. Um, we'd certainly love to have financial resources, but I do think there's a way to do this without that. There's a lot of um, resources out there already existing that we've kind of tapped into. And um, we're part of the initiative's goal is to kind of bring together the right people that are in the sport who want to volunteer their time towards this. So um, just kind of by getting the word out there about this, we've identified some really like smart, well-educated people who are presenting to our group and offering their expertise. And so there's definitely a way to do this on a budget. I also think that this kind of work really does involve um, everybody to do their share um, from, you know, the individual curler looking at their own implicit biases to the curling club level to the organizational level. So I think at some point we are going to need to try to convince those who aren't necessarily a part of it just yet. But um, it really does require everybody getting involved. And when that happens, I think that um, there should be enough resources to kind of get it, get it done. Yeah. Talking about resources, like we've talked about that before, like we'd mostly like, we'd like to, if we had funding, be able to pay people to actually come and do webinars and, and workshops and share, share their knowledge, because if that's your job and you have all of that expertise, then we shouldn't be asking people to give that to us for free. We can think of these expenses as an investment for the future, right? A future that involves a like a more diverse curling community would probably increase revenues for clubs, would mean more sponsorship, would mean like bigger markets for WCF and everyone to sell the broadcast rights and stuff, right? So it, we, we think the expenses today are just an investment for a, a better, more diverse future. Yeah. And to kind of put it in very simple, generalized terms, like 
more diversity in the sport means there's more curlers in general, which means more revenue, which means more representation, more performance, more sponsorship, more just everything. Um, so I really don't see any argument against it, to be honest. Like Raju said, it's investing in the future. Um, and it's pretty common, I guess, knowledge, I think, that um, diversity, when you have like a group of people that are trying to make a decision, the more diverse um, the group of people, the better the decision is going to be because it's going to consider different outcomes. Um, and this concept kind of applies across like all ways that humans organize at any level that they organize. And I think it applies to our sport too. So with, keeping that concept in mind, um, there's really no downside to improving DEI and curling. Let's talk a little bit about the importance of representation. So on your call, I think it was Ray, Ray Hussein who plays for Guyana, uh, but grew up in Toronto as a Toronto area curler also, mentioned the importance of Rudy Ramsharan. So I'm not sure how much that name travels outside of Canada, but he, he won the Briar in 1997 playing second for Kevin Martin. And he, to, he's probably the first person of color that I can think of who's um, played one, certainly won the Briar. I think there was also Brian Mackey who won. I was an Asian Canadian who won with uh, in 2000 also, but basically if I can rattle off two names, it gives you a sense of how undiverse uh, Canadian curling is. Right. Um, so, I guess a couple of things. So why is why does representation at the the highest level matter for kind of growing the sport, diversifying the sport? And then what programs are out there to help develop athletes from underrepresented backgrounds so they can compete at that level? So I think uh, representation matters in the fact like it's aspirational, right? So if I see an Indian curler doing well at like a Canadian national championship, so maybe I would work hard and try and represent India and do well, right? So I think that aspirational aspect helps. I, I guess then, so so it does help. So then what, what can be done, I guess? Like, so, so, I mean, it's, if the sport's not that diverse right now, like there's not that, like there's, it, it takes a long time to grow an elite curler, right? Like it's a 10, 10 plus year process, right? There's very few people who can walk in and be competing at a national level. So what, um, what do you think could be done to help grow diversity and representation at the at the kind of international stage, if you will. Like you said, like it takes time. It takes time to grow an elite curler. Um, but there are more positions that we can have representation that are not necessarily elite curling. Like look at your board, look at your staff, look at the people who get appointed in other like organizational leadership positions, and make sure that you have representation here you can do that a lot faster because to be on a board, you don't even need to know how to throw a rock. Um, so I think if you start there, then your organization is likely, first of all, you will um, you will have different people in leading positions, but will, which will help you make like better decisions and form a better structure to welcome more curlers. Um, I think that's one really important issue, like the really important thing to look at. Um, for like World Curling Federation, for associations and for clubs. Throwing myself under the bus here, like I'm, <laughs> I'm, I'm employed, <laughs> maybe someone else needs to take my position, but look, we are all white staff, able-bodied. Um, uh, we, we're not all, we have wheelchair representation on our board, um, but it's a fairly homogenous 
that's the word in English, right? Yeah. Um, bored. Um, everyone's over 50, financially stable, white people. We can get, we can do better there. Yeah. And I think the point is we don't necessarily know the answer to this. It's complicated. Um, I think someone said in the, the panel, we should get Rudy involved in this and um, we should reach out to him. And obviously like being respectful of his privacy and if he even would want to get involved, I think there's some merit to that point. Um, just kind of fostering relationships and, and making sure to value the little diversity that we do have and, um, you know, making sure we get people involved and keep them involved. To add to your point, Jonathan, I think uh, that 10-year process, right? Like if you wait for representation and then a further 10 years for like diversity to grow, that won't work. So I think it has to also be bottoms up, right? So maybe identify these, these uh, diverse curlers who are already looking to play at the elite level or uh, want to be more competitive and maybe just work with them, help help them through that 10-year process, uh, provide the resources so that like once they do get to that stage, maybe they'll inspire more people. So also a bottoms-up approach would go a long way in helping with that representation eventually. So a second issue that was flagged on the call was from TJ Cole, for, who kind of is the skip of the Nigerian team, who he he said that he that Keith had, that curling was elitist, that there was a perception, especially in the black community in the U.S., because TJ plays out of Denver, that the sport was exclusive and overwhelmingly white, which I think is certainly true. He also said that there was an issue, there's a sense that curling wasn't affordable, which to me was a little bit more surprising because, you know, compared to a lot of other sports, uh, the cost for a basic moment of sliders minimal. But I think the perception does matter. So I guess there's kind of a two-parter here as well. So is affordability an issue uh, for, for curling? And then, and, and then kind of what can be done to address the perception uh, that, it, that it's unaffordable? No, I think it depends where you curl out of, right? So for example, curling is very expensive in the Bay Area. Uh, we, and like we've been an arena club uh, for a long time. We're hoping to get dedicated eyes soon, but like it is expensive in the Bay Area. The club is actually located in uh, Oakland. The membership is probably not representative of the, the diversity of Oakland, right? So I guess it depends where the clubs are located and what access to those facilities look like. I think he's completely valid in in feeling that way. I I think it is a relative thing and depends on circumstance, like location, et cetera. Um, Like, for example, many curling clubs maybe are in discussions right now about how they might be undervaluing their annual membership and um, might need to raise their dues, especially with the global pandemic, to um, make sure that their club is sustainable. But on the flip side, that the price of membership might just be too much or in a lump sum that's not um, really viable for individual members. And maybe um, kind of a pay-as-you-go structure would be more affordable or more reasonable for those individuals. Um, so it really just depends on circumstance. So like Raju said, I think it, it's really on the club to look at their membership, their current and their targeted membership and make sure that there's kind of a spectrum of price points so that a more diverse socioeconomic membership can emerge um, while also making sure that the club is a sustainable endeavor. Sorry, is that the case in Sweden also? I mean, my perceptions that it's this land of 
economic equality, right? But it, are sports like curling well-funded or is it also a very expensive sport there? I would say like, this is also a, what, what's reality and what's perception. Um, like, I know a lot of people that work for like basically all of the sports that are available in Sweden and curling is one of the cheapest, uh, but that is not what the public believes. Um, uh, but and all, but we also have the problem of, of where do you find the ice rink? So for Stockholm, for instance, you will find a curling club in one of the areas where the socio-economical standard is really high, and the BIPOC community is really low. So who curls? Um, and that will set the image of what curling costs and who is a curler, right? Um, but we are also looking at like what Monica is saying, like the entire structure of memberships, like because we're not very modern when it comes to that. It's a very type of, okay, you pay your membership in the beginning of the season, you pay for the entire year. And then in Sweden, you just curl as much as you want for that sum of money. So if you play curling every day, like your daily fee is like a dollar. Uh, but if you curl once a month, then it's a lot more and it might be a lot to pay just once a year so like how can we how do we change that to actually like encourage people to be more spontaneous with their curling or show up and like pay and play and find memberships that also work work in that way so another thing that jumped out on this call for me was that uh, a lot of people on the webinar were were expats right and there were expats going multiple directions so there was you know i guess like Raju, who's an Indian expat in the San Francisco Bay Area. There was TJ Cole, who's Nigerian expat curling in Denver, but kind of setting up the Nigerian Curling Association. Kim Forge, who's a Canadian expat, uh, trying to help trying to help build the the uh, curling program in Australia. So, I guess how important and how helpful are having these kind of diasporas uh, kind of globalize the curling community and diversify it. Do you, have you noticed this through your through your initiatives? I think uh, diasporas are going to be really important, especially for countries that do not send a lot of athletes to Winter Olympics and like do not have access to the facilities or uh, resources that are required to like grow these uh, grow these sports back home, right? So I think if you look at like number of uh, national Olympic committees and like the number of WCF members, there's a huge gap. Um, so we are at 60 odd uh, WCF members and there are hundred odd, like close to 200 uh, national Olympic committees. Right. So we still have a long way to spread the sport um, around the globe. And I think diaspora and expats and people who have the opportunity of trying our sport can like definitely help bringing that sport back to their home country uh, and like, figuring out a way of like uh, getting people in those countries access to ice and uh, being able to play the sport on ice. So I think expats and diaspora are going to play a huge role in helping uh, curling become a truly global sport. So another thing that came up uh, and again, this was like a de- this was framed as a DEI issue, which was, I think, surprising to me. So, uh, so one concern was that the promotion relegation system created that the WCF has, right? That if emerging countries have to start off in the C pool or in the B pool, or you know, 
um, and then work their way up, is that this created the perception that emerging countries were kind of second-class citizens in the curling world. And often, I think a few people point out that often it's the countries that were non-white that ended up in the B and the C pools, right? Especially when you're looking at the, the Asia Pacific or Americas region. Um, so now there may be some good competitive reasons for having that promotion relegation system and organizational reasons. But can you comment at least on how this might create problems from a DEI perspective for kind of organ- not just the WCF, but other national governing bodies that they may be unintentionally creating hierarchies and setting up their competitions? What you're describing is definitely presents kind of a representation issue that we've discussed earlier in this podcast where um, certain populations, particularly in, in curling in the BIPOC community, are not getting represented at the top level, which is where the television coverage and um, revenue development and sponsorship, all those pieces kind of happen. So that's where the issue lies. And I think there's a lot of creative ways to kind of combat this. Um, one that comes to mind is um, having a showcase event. And I think we've discussed this a bit in the panel um, where, uh, you know, instead of um, just having a, a showcase event that is Europe versus North America, for example, um, we have one that's truly global that um allows teams that may not have broken into the top tier of competition yet to play the top competition and just bringing a bunch of different countries together um, for curling and getting them on TV and getting them that representation. I don't see any reason why we couldn't have something like that. And I think that it actually would do really well and and a lot of people would be interested in it. The, the one idea I kind of floated on the call and some people seem to endorse it was um, this idea for like a Davis Cup style competition like in tennis right where you have this bracket format and so maybe I mean, you can you can figure out other different ways to structure it but basically every country in the world enters the davis cup at uh, at some kind of point and every country is eligible and we know that at the end um you know it's going to be the tennis powers but at least every country gets a shot and maybe for them advancing one or two rounds is a big big um advantage so do you think that might be a, a possible way to go raju both those competitions are, again, like very tiered, right? So there are like five tiers leading up to the top, which is very similar to what we have. Uh, so all the teams have an equal shot at making it to the world championships, right? So like India could technically enter the Pacific Asia Curling Championships and then qualify for the world championships. I think WCF uh, is concerned or like wants uh, to give everyone like an equal opportunity to make it to like the worlds or the Olympics, right? So maybe like what we need from like a DEI perspective is uh, rather than e- equal opportunities, maybe we we want equitable opportunities, right? So maybe like e- equality of outcomes. So could there be structures that like maybe allow emerging countries to like send teams to these WCF events, or maybe world championships. Maybe it doesn't have to be the Olympics, right? So maybe there's one spot at Worlds where, like, emerging countries have their own competition, and the winner of that competition gets an entry uh, to the world championships, for example, or maybe gets a direct entry to the world qualifying event that is held every year. Mm. Um, so things like those. So yeah. So I'm not sure, like. Uh, 
I guess I'm not as big of a tennis uh, tennis fan as probably you are. It's just I, I see a lot of similarities between like what Davis Cup does and the WCF already has uh, in terms of its competition structure. So I'm not sure like if that'll if that'll really help. Yeah, so let's so that I want to go back to something Sarah said a bit earlier um, that diversity is not just simply on the ice, but also kind of participation in the organization as a whole. And I know from kind of my membership in lots of different clubs and curling organizations, um, often curlers end up being your best resource, right? That I'm always amazed that if a club has like a financial problem, there's an accountant available, or if it's a marketing problem, there's somebody who works in marketing who can kind of help you run your recruitment campaign. So for people who are listening to this podcast who are curlers and members of clubs, what kind of skill sets do you think clubs and curling organizations need to get DEI initiatives off the ground? I just want to say in general, we need help with this initiative. Um, Like I said before, it's purely volunteer based. So we've been lucky enough to have some people kind of emerge out of the cracks, so to speak, and reach out to us and want to get involved. But we want more. And we know there's people out there who do DEI work for maybe the the company that they work for, um, who also happen to be curlers. We're looking for you, if that's the case. Um, We're looking for people to present and provide educational opportunities in our webinars. Um, We're also looking to kind of build um, a a resource list um, um, that can be shared amongst nations, specifically for DEI and curling. So if anybody has any resources, reach out to us about that as well. Um, We're also working on um, some some tools, which Raju can go into uh, the Spectrum tool a bit. Yeah, so, so what is the Spectrum tool, Raju? So basically, the Spectrum tool is a tool that was built by a nonprofit in the U.S. The idea was to like evaluate where in a DEI journey an organization is. So it identifies like 12 different components and uh, organizations can be at five different steps in that journey. So what we are doing is we are trying to uh, customize and tailor that tool for curling. So we're making a DEI uh, spectrum tool for curling. Um, So the idea is to identify these different components that are involved in DEI work. And uh, with the the goal of providing these to organizations that can evaluate where they are in that journey, we're hoping that like clubs, uh, national governing bodies, any, any other organizations involved with DEI can use the tool uh, to figure out like what they should be doing, like what the next steps are, and all the components that would make a DEI initiative successful. We're hoping that we'll release it uh, in the next month or so, um, and hopefully clubs and national governing bodies will find it useful and will use it to guide their DEI journeys. So what, I guess for our listeners now, just to wrap up, what what do you want them to take away from this this uh, this discussion um like what if they're they've listened they're kind of intrigued about this initiative what could they do next um and what kind of what next steps are you doing that you want our listeners to know about like our next steps is uh, i mean we are working on um like we tried and and organize at least two uh, like webinars or workshops every month uh, so like check out our newsletter and if you think the topics 
will be good for your organization, then join. Um, and also, like, send us your requests. Like, what would you like to learn more about? And we will try and find um, people um, that can help us in those areas. Um, and as Raju said, like, we are also getting help and uh, working on this um, Spectrum tool. So hopefully we will be able to publish, like, quite an extensive amount of resources in a while. I would say first steps for somebody wanting to get involved with the initiative are to shoot us an email at globalcurlingdei at gmail.com. We can get you on our newsletter. And once you're getting our newsletter, you're going to see all the webinars that we have up and coming, which includes the USA Curling Icebreaker Program. Um, It includes talking about clubs and how to be more inclusive um, and maybe some future panels as well. Um, it also will give you access to the, the Spectrum tool, um, which we hope will be coming out in a couple months. And it, like I said, we need experts in DEI in curling. So if you feel that you have experience in this, please reach out to us and we'd love to have you present um, or help us on the stuff that we're working on. So don't be shy. Um, like a first step. Like, look at your own organization and have the conversation. Like, what do you see? Like, who is represented? Who is not represented? What do you see when you walk into your club, on the ice, on the boardroom, on the walls, on your website? Look it over um, and with some critical eyes and really have that conversation. And then you will sort of see where you're at. And I think the next steps will come like what you will you will realize what you need and then you need to find the expertise to help you there yeah okay is there anything else you want to add uh before we wrap up here no i have a question (laughs) yeah um what do you think oh that's a great question in terms of in terms of what in terms of my organization or the the dei initiative I left it very open for your interpretation. <laughs> I mean, I think definitely English curling is well. It's a hundred percent white. I think I'm trying. To, I don't. I can't think of a single person of color. Um, it's also, I think, very expensive here, and there's there's no funding. Uh, so I think those are our three biggest kind of obstacles: is that it just hasn't had a history of um, diversity. Um, so I think there's there's definitely a lot of work to be done there. Uh, I'm I'm glad to see this initiative pick up because like like Ryan and I um, did an episode basically back in June right after the protests after George Floyd's death and there was actually a lot of stuff going on then in the curling space because everyone's on lockdown and it's the big issue and a lot of momentum and I think one of my big fears was that would just be the flavor of the week and people would <laughs> move on to whatever the next thing is and by the time we come out of lockdown it's Olympics and everything else is is kind of pushed back to the side. So I'm glad to see kind of momentum going for this. Um, and I, I think it's going to di- differ from place to place. So having, having kind of moved around the curling world a lot, I think there's different issues. Like the U S and Canada are different, right. And, and Europe and, and North America have different diversity and inclusion issues too. So I think there's a lot of differences in terms of the challenges, but, but I agree that wherever you were at, if curling doesn't, diversify just just out of self-interest for the sport aside from the fact that a more diverse club's a better club in my mind for sure but um 
I think that, that curling's then really in trouble. That you know, I teach at a university, and the next generation has no time for <laughs> for all white spaces, right? So it's it's you're just not going to get that generation. And then I think at the flip side, just the, the one thing I'm hopeful about with curling is that it is good at pulling people together, and you know. It's one way of kind of pulling us out of our bubbles a little bit. So maybe if curling does take diversity seriously, then we can we can kind of, you know, knock down some of the barriers to through through the sport would be the kind of more positive, positive message, I'd say. But um, so that's what I think. So do you have any advice for us? You're in the initiative. <laughs> You're in. I mean, I, I think it's like I I found so for me that that call was really interesting because I, you know, I, I'm in an organization and in England's oddly an emerging country, right? We have two ranks. Um, our access to Team GB is limited. We do compete internationally. And so I have a lot of sympathy with like the stories that Adriana and TJ and Ray are saying that, that when we go to, I coach the junior team and it's all self-funded and that's, that's expensive. Like the, even 10 days of the junior Bs in Finland is a very expensive proposition. And that either knocks out some juniors early on, or it's, there's some places where our family's giving like everything just for their daughter or son to get one chance to play to represent England. So I think that's, uh, those challenges I think are kind of compounded with other countries too, right. From the global South where <laughs> the funding may not be there at all, but that's, that's just the simple fact. And then, yeah, we, we basically face a similar chicken and egg problem too, that, you know, we need more rinks to, to produce more curlers and um, can't do that. And then, you know, England's not a very diverse country, but it certainly is more diverse than, <laughs> than English curling. Right. So th there's questions to be asked there as well. So I think, I think all of it's kind of interesting to think about. Yeah. So I think that's a good conversation for sure. Um, anything, anything else you want to just add in terms of promotion stuff, just that we can add in at the very end or. We're also on Facebook. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, yeah, you're on Facebook. Are you on Instagram too? Or Yeah, I just um, got into the Instagram and Twitter, although I don't know if I necessarily have the bandwidth to um, make those as good as they should be. Uh, but we're just basically try trying to reach out to people right now and um, bring kind of people who are interested in this together so that we can – have the best resources possible. Okay, Jonathan, I think one of the most important things to come from that interview comes from something that Raju said, which was we as a sport, especially at the grassroots level, need to look around and say, okay, what impediments are in place that might keep our sport from becoming more diverse and inclusive? Because as a sport, we like to think we're diverse and inclusive, but I don't think that there's as much self-awareness about what might keep someone who doesn't look like us from feeling accepted when they come and experience our sport. Yeah, and I think that's a good point. I and mean, we had a little bit of a dust up on Twitter. I guess you kind of, with our account, got kind of involved in it. It was actually mostly Devin Hero who who posted an article about diversity and curling back in June and the, the Twitter responses to what he said were, I mean, to be honest, horrific. So if you don't think curling has a racism problem, go look at the responses to Devin's story. And then just uh, then uh, Ryan, you made a kind of an intervention there as well back then. So I think the first steps to kind of admit we have a problem 
around um, diversity. And I think it's, it's basically to my mind functions at two levels. So one is, you know, there's not many people who are outright bigots in curling clubs, but there are a few and they can be, they can create a hostile environment. But I think the bigger issue is how an institution is structured shapes who joins that institution, how they participate and everything else. Right. So in, in kind of social science jargon, we call this structural, which means that in a certain sense, no individual person's responsible. So when we say the curling club's lacking diversity, it's not that you or me are racist and explicitly saying nobody of color is allowed to join the curling club. It's that the ways in which the curling club is set up, maybe where it's located, maybe how it on-ramps people, maybe how it recruits people, maybe the kind of language is talked about in a curling club, or even the simple things as, you know, what are the, the races of the the pictures of people's on the wall of the curling club, right? But I think Monica kind of flagged that as if the curling club's only got pictures of white people on it, uh, how is, you know, a, a child of color who's like 14, 15, 16 and passionate about curling going to feel? They're going to ask themselves, well, do I belong in a club that has nobody that looks like me on the walls? So I think that's the, that to my, to my mind is the kind of big takeaway message here is, is people can get a bit defensive when we talk about, issues around diversity, but um, perhaps like, first of all, just listening and then maybe taking the ego out of it and not worrying so much about whether or not you or your institution is racist. And instead think about, um, you know, how unintentionally an institution may have built in biases and lack of diversity over time. And then what, what can be done to, to break that down. And your members will tell you with their actions how the culture in your club is. So if you, you know, you may think we're really inclusive, but if non-white curlers aren't sticking around a lot or aren't enthusiastic about volunteering, then there, there may be an issue. So like look around and if all of your volunteers are white guys, all of the people on your board are white guys. Your culture sucks because you're not as inclusive as you think you are. And so then the questions, I guess there's two choices. And I think, you know, maybe one response is do nothing. And that may tell you a lot uh, about where that club is. I, I honestly think that even if there's, I think there's a moral reason to do this. Like it's just, you know, I don't, I, I don't want to be participating in a game that's in, implicitly a whites only game. Like to me, that's not what, what curling's about. Um, but I also just think there's a survival element too. And so kind of sometimes mm -hmm. it's appealing to self-interest, right? That I think one of the things there's a lot of concern about is the lack of ability to recruit amongst Gen Z. And to be honest, Gen Z they're not, it's the most diverse generation like ever in the U S and it's a minority majority generation, which means there's no racial group or ethnic group that's in the majority amongst zoomers. So they, they just won't participate <laughs> in something where they think it's a, it's a whites only or majority white thing. You'll just lose that generation. So, you know, if you're a curler who's like myself, Gen X or above, and you want curling to carry on in some kind of long-term viable form. I think this is an issue that, that your club has to address just out of, out of survival. Yeah. It's like, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm passionate about this sport and I'm passionate about 
sharing this sport with everyone and for people like me who are passionate about sharing the sport with everyone, like prepare to get uncomfortable because there may be things that you enjoy about the sport that you may have to lose to bring more people into it. Like our, our culture around drinking may turn some people off to the sport. Like you said, Jonathan, the, the, the things that we embrace as far as our history may turn some people off to the sport. And that came up during the interview as well. Um, you know, there, there may be some changes that you're going to have to make in order to make the sport grow and survive and thrive. Yeah. And I mean, you can think of drinking, like a lot of religious traditions um, have prohibitions on drinking. So if someone comes from a, a religious background where, you know, drinking is prohibited, and you basically say, well, the only way you can participate is by drinking beer with us after the game. That that can be kind of a turnoff there, right? Um, I mean, it's like little things like that all the way to kind of very big things. But I think I think the point here is to to listen. I mean, we've listened to the interview today, but if if you've listened to it and think, okay, what can I do next? I think the next step is to go sign up for the newsletter with the, mm -hmm. the initiative, the global initiative. And then... Uh, perhaps participate in one of the webinars. Like I actually really enjoyed the conversation. Um, you get, it's, it's set up. They have like a panel of, of experts on to discuss an issue. Um, it's just normally about an hour. We're all used to participating in Zoom meetings now, so it shouldn't be a problem there. And um, the, it was, I thought there was a very good discussion. They opened to questions and um, I got I got a lot of good feedback from my questions, like a lot of good answers, if you will. So. What I'm really excited about is now that there's some sort of light at the end of the tunnel for the end of this pandemic is we've been able to have, with with the technology that we have in place today, we've been able to have these conversations and start building these resources so that when the pandemic is subsided and curling clubs can open again, then we can start you know, we'll, we will be empowered to do some really important work once that happens. So it may seem like things are kind of going slow right now, but it's because none of the clubs are open and we can't go and we can't go anywhere to share our game really, but we can have really important conversations and build really important resources that can be utilized uh, when things get, when we get back on the ice. Yeah. And I, I just to fizz on, finish on a positive mode, I'm really excited about a curling world where you have you know, federations from Nigeria to Guyana to Hong Kong to Mexico, right? I think that mm -hmm. that to me means that curling then looks like an Olympic sport, yes. right? Like, like, right. It's not just Northern European and North American countries participating. It's, it's everyone from all over the world. And why can't an Olympian walk into a curling club in India in the next decade, like a 12 year old and kind of dream and maybe even get to the Olympics. Like, why is that? Why that's, that's the kind of curling world I want. Right. Yeah. That's a, that's a great note to end on. I love it. And I think that we can all, uh, we can all aspire to that. Thank you for listening to rocks across the pond, a curling podcast. You can find all of our previous episodes and blog posts at rocksacrossthepond.com. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, TuneIn, or your favorite podcast app, and leave a review. If you enjoyed listening, the greatest compliment we can receive is when you tell a friend about us. That helps us grow and helps us share our love of this great game. 
If you have a comment or question, or you just want to talk about curling, you can email us at rocksacrossthepond at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at Curling Podcast. We are also on Facebook and Instagram at Rocks Across the Pond. Thank you again, and we will talk to you real soon.